combination. What up? What up? What up, everyone? Welcome to episode 219. You heard that right. Episode 219 of Combos Court. And I am Combo. Tell a friend to tell a friend about the show. And of course, man, rate, review, punch down on that subscribe button. We're out here, man. Combo Nation. Today's show, Paul Shirley, author of Can I Keep My Jersey, joins in. Paul is a former professional in the NBA and in Europe as well. A great conversation with Paul. Paul's book is actually one that I read while I was playing overseas, so it was great to have Paul on the show. You could find Paul on Instagram at Paul Then Shirley. That's P A U L T H E N S H I R L E Y. You know you could find me on Instagram at 12combo. That's O N E T W O C O M B O. Intro music by Luca Beats. Let's. Get into it. Luca, don't do it to him. Paul Shirley, author of Can I Keep My Jersey, former NBA player. Uh, welcome to Combos Court. How are you feeling today? Good. I'm nervous about what we're going to do. What are we going to do? We're going to talk about your book because it was actually a book I read while I was playing overseas. Uh, found it real interesting. It's funny. And then I was playing in Denmark and I was at a friend's house and he had the book as well. Mm. And uh, I read it again. Actually, the second time I read half of it, to be honest. Okay. So I read your book. <laughs> One and a half times is a lot, actually. If you think about how personal a book will, will be usually. Like, I think about, I read a ton, but there's a lot of books I start and I don't finish. So, like, thinking about how much a book has, a, has to resonate with someone to get them all the way through is both intimidating and then also quite the compliment when somebody says they actually finished it. And you read it a time and a half, which is amazing. A hundred percent. And I, fi- I find the same thing when I'm, when somebody tells me they listen to the podcast, um, you know, the listenership is growing and I really appreciate everybody who listens to this podcast, but somebody listening to a podcast is a lot different than somebody liking a picture. And a book is even more than that when you read a whole book, you know? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I, I think it's also just, uh, you know, I, I have had to remind myself of that often when working on my own books, just that um, I think we have to remember that it's quite the undertaking to read an entire book especially in a time that's you know so fragmented and so distracted for sure all right so let's start with you uh where were you actually writing this book while you were overseas uh to give people some context at that point it was five countries 11 teams over a four-year span if i'm correct and uh where'd you actually write it like because i know you have a lot of downtime while you're abroad Mm -hmm. uh is that where you wrote it Inadvertently, yes. I started okay. writing when I first got to my first job out of college was playing in Greece. I had gotten cut by the Lakers, um, went to the went to the Lakers training camp, got cut as soon as they could cut anybody uh, and um, took a job in Greece and had had a friend that uh, the year before when I was a senior in college um, had played in Spain and he would write these emails home to people about what that experience was like. And I had resolved that if I ever got to play professionally, I would do something similar. And then sure enough, as you know, I, you, you get overseas and it's all weird all the time. 
and I needed some way to process it. So I just started just kind of as a, an exercise and a way to like almost keep track of all of the, that was happening. Um, started writing it down and, and then would send it out to at first a list of, you know, 20 friends and family. Um, I realized pretty quickly that if I made the emails funny, then people would respond to them. Uh, and that made me feel less alone. It also meant that yeah. people started like forwarding them to their friends because, you know, it was 2001. So it was a time when email was a little more sacred. Uh, people were paying a lot more attention to their email. Um, we didn't have social media. Uh, and I, I think, you know, now you could probably search what's playing professional basketball in Greece like and get a pretty good representation of it, thanks to Google. But back then, right. nobody knew what that was like, even though it was only, you know, 19 or 20 years ago. So I think people were interested in what was happening. And, and so I kept writing those journal entries. And then when I was uh, four years later playing for the Phoenix Suns, their web people um, asked if I would write a blog for their website, which at the time was newfangled and um, didn't know that I had already kind of built up this shtick. Like I had, I had done it now at, by that point for long enough that I thought someday I will turn this into a book. Um, and then sure enough, that blog got some attention and that resulted in a book deal. So then when the book deal got signed, we had to figure out how to present it. And so we ended up presenting it in journal format. Um, and so that meant that we were, you know, some of the, uh, most of my early writings were just God awful. So we couldn't use anything even as a draft from that, but, um, but it actually made quite a bit of sense to keep it in that format just because then the reader could kind of discover what I was discovering as I went. And more importantly than all of that, it gave you something to do with that idle time, huh? Yeah. I mean, it, it also <laughs> gave me, I mean, you know how it is like there's it's, it's, it's interesting because you have time away from the court, but you're also tired a lot. Right. Um, and so it was nice to have a thing I could do that didn't involve like a ton of physical activity. I could, I could engage my brain and it, you know, it taught me a lot about um, the power of catharsis, you know, just having a way to put it down on the page um, when again, I'm sure you remember this, this feeling of like, you, you don't know if you're going to get paid, you don't know, oh, you know where you're going to be the next year or the next week sometimes. Um, so I think it, it helped me to, to process just all of the stuff I was going through. It helped me see somebody else going through it. Um, so Iowa State, what went into your decision and what led up to that? Because your route was unconventional. I think you were a walk-on, correct? I was, yeah. What? Uh, by the way, where'd you go to college? I don't, I don't know I that. Did, I did. Uh, I did junior college ball and right overseas, man. Oh wow! Like, yeah. uh, like uh, Chris Anderson, something like that. You know, I played in the ABA as well, so I did that for a year. I know you okay. played in the ABA, yeah, uh, for a little bit. So I did that craziness. We went to Singapore and Canada, and then mm -hmm. I ended up going overseas. Yeah, you know? I mentioned uh, Chris Anderson just because he was he was the Birdman. Yeah, he was on my summer league team wow. in Cleveland and had gone to, I think, Blinn Junior College and then went to play in Japan, if I remember correctly. Okay. He, thought he, he thought he was going to get drafted and it was a complete disaster um, because at the time he hadn't figured out anything about basketball. Um, and that was before the tattoos, right? Yeah, he was amazing in the layup line and then had no idea after that. So like okay. <laughs> it was he would tell stories about like being in Japan and and how awful it was. Um not that there's anything wrong with Japan. I think I think one thing people have to remember is that when you're playing overseas, 
it's it's not you don't just it's not just like a vacation so i think you actually have to live there i told right people. him him complaining about japan was not necessarily saying that there was anything wrong with being in japan it's just hard especially if you're a kid from blinn junior college in texas and you've been inserted into into japan anyway that's a, a long uh, digression the uh, back to the the story at hand i guess you know you have a, a different entry point to basketball and and so do i I grew up in a town of 700 people in Kansas and um, was a good high school basketball player, but I didn't, we didn't know like how the system worked at all. So we were just, I was just playing high school basketball and then, you know, finally kind of stumbling my way onto AAU teams, but you know, it it wasn't as organized maybe as it, as it would be now. Right. Um, So I kept getting better and better. And and then I, I was being recruited by like division two schools and Ivy league schools and Patriot league schools. Um, but none of it was quite connecting. Cause I, I kept thinking like, I think I'm better than these school, nothing, you know, there's nothing wrong with going to play at Dartmouth or whatever, but I felt like I could reach for higher things. Um, and actually my dad to his credit was like, well, well, why don't you write some letters? So I wrote letters to 80 different colleges. Um, I didn't write to like UCLA or North Carolina. Cause I knew that was maybe out of the picture, but I was running to like, Northwestern and Vanderbilt and places like that places yeah. I thought like eh, I could probably manage that yeah. um, and they almost all came back as either non-responses or no's but one of the people who said no was Tim Floyd who was at Iowa State he actually wrote a, a note back saying you know thank you for the information but we're not interested um, and then I turned down the University of North Dakota because it's real cold in North Dakota and I was just couldn't imagine going to play there, even though they were really interested and really gracious. Right. And one of their assistants had been an assistant coach at Iowa State. And he called Tim Floyd and said, hey, there's this kid nobody knows about in rural Kansas that I think would be interesting. They had already like said no. And then Tim Floyd, when he got on the phone, was like, you seem like a good guy, but we are out of scholarships. And then my mother came into play. She figured out I was a national merit finalist. Um, she figured out that at Iowa State, you could go to school for free if you're a national merit finalist oh wow uh i was able to i could like we called tim floyd and basically said like hey could would you be interested in a basketball player if it didn't cost you a scholarship and he's like sounds like a pretty good deal so i made my one my one deal was that i i would not be called a walk-on because i knew that that would affect how people perceived me so i was a walk-on and i'm proud of that now but at the time nobody knew that so he just kind of did a little bit of wizardry and witchcraft and just didn't talk about the fact that technically I wasn't on an athletic scholarship um which at the time I remember thinking like am I being insecure but I actually think it was the right thing because that you get framed in a certain way depending perception is everything in your pro career they label especially overseas they'll label you real quick (laughs) yeah yeah and that that was true in college too you know like if uh if I, I think if I had been portrayed as just a walk on, then I'm just another skinny Midwestern white kid. Um, it, as if I was, when I was portrayed as a, a scholarship guy, I was like, oh, he might be kind of exciting. He's from a different state. Like, who knows? This was all, you know, I went, I'm from Kansas, but went to Iowa State, which to people not from the Midwest, those seem like the same thing. But back home, it's a bit of a difference. Yeah. I mean, when you read your book, you realize it comes across that you have an incredible amount of self awareness. And I think in the sport of basketball, many benefit off irrational confidence so do you feel your self-awareness actually benefited you while for others it was the irrational confidence that benefited them so 
after Coach Floyd left Iowa State, he was there for two years, and then he went to be the head coach of the Chicago Bulls. Um, we right. we had the coach of uh, whose name was Larry Eustachie uh, for my last two years, and okay. I was not particularly close with Larry Eustachie. I didn't really like him that much, but he said a couple a few things that were actually fairly profound, and and one of them was that when you're coaching, you have to be the most yourself that you can be like you can't try to be somebody else you can't try you know if you're a mild-mannered guy you can't try to be bobby knight if you're a bobby knight type you can't try to be a mild-mannered guy you just have to be the most that you can be and i think um for me it has been successful when i'm the most of who i am right and so i am simultaneously self-deprecating and and painfully right. self-care and also weirdly self-confident and so I think when I've been at my best, it was that I was relaxed and at ease with who I was, that I could be like, look, you know, I'm not the best guy here, but I know this or this or this. Um, I think I've gotten in trouble when I leaned too heavily onto one end or the other. I actually would say that that's, this is sort of true of, of everything in life that, you know, if you can figure out how to be the most or the, the most distilled version of yourself, you'll probably be okay. You know, you'll figure out your way and you'll, you'll figure out how to make that successful. Um, I, I run a business now and I'm thinking all the time about, you know, what is it like to be the founder and CEO of a thing? And, and sometimes I get caught up in thinking like, well, other people do it this way. Um, in reality, you can learn from other people, but you have to be the most yourself you can be. And I think when I played, I did make the mistake sometimes of being probably erring too, si too much on the side of being self-deprecating. Um, and that may have haunted me occasionally. Um, but in the end, I got to have a pretty interesting basketball career. It made, the book, it made the book interesting. I'll yeah, and it also probably helped me leverage the basketball career into something else. And I think, like, <clears throat> you know, the fact that I got to play for three different NBA teams, like, during the regular season is kind of miraculous because – a lot of times if you make it once and then go away, they just sort of forget about you. And I think that could mostly be yeah. put down to the fact that I was always just like easy to get along with. So like the trainers would be like, well, you know, our guys between number nine and 15 don't really like, they're not going to change our fortunes probably. So we might as well have somebody that we can tolerate being around. So I think, you know, just being decent and, and a fairly stand up human helped me in that regard. And, and that actually, probably came because I was self-aware most of the time. So going through college, when did you realize you were on the NBA radar, if at all? And what was your draft process like? Um, I, I don't, I don't think I really thought, I, I mean, it, college for me was like being in the military. Like it was, <laughs> we were good, but it was not fun. Um, right. And I most of the time was just worried about like getting through to the next thing I had. I was injured a lot, um, but playing injured and on a lot of painkillers and anti-inflammatories. So I was also kind of like, what, a, like, why am I doing this? This is not fun anymore. I've forgotten why I liked this um, <laughs> because we were so good. So my, my junior, we went to the elite eight and lost to Michigan state in the finals. My senior year, we finished the season ranked like number five and then became the fourth number two seed to lose. Tinsley and, and Pfizer were both on the team. Tinsley and Pfizer junior year. And then Pfizer left. And then my senior, year, it was just uh, Tinsley. Gotcha. That'd be Jamal Tinsley. Right. New York city, man. New York city. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, 
so then we, because we were so good, I got invited with a couple of my teammates to the Portsmouth Invitational Tournament. Right. Which best is, seniors in the country, usually. Right. Uh, a lot of the very best don't go because they're like, yeah, we're, right. we're going to get drafted. But, and it's become, you know, it's different than it probably was in, say, 1985, right? When, you know, you mostly drafted seniors. Nowadays, it's a lot of one and done. Classmen yeah. that are, are going to be drafted. Anyway, point is, that I got invited to this tournament and I sort of made a pact with myself that I was going to have fun again. I was going to try to play basketball and enjoy it. And sure enough, I was good. I was like, Oh shit, I forgot. Like, I know, like, I know how to do this. I, you know, you get in college, you get sort of like just pigeonholed into to one role. And even at that uh, Portsmouth thing, I, I had three or four agents circling like, Hey, you know, who, who is this guy? He's, he's better than we thought he was. Um, and so that's when I really started to get serious thinking. I mean, I, I considered like that I might get to play after, um, but it, it started to feel real at that point. And, and I think some of that might've been because the big 12 at the time, and I think this is still true, was so good that I kind of forgot that there were going to be a lot of players worse than me out in the world, you know? So like we're, we were used to playing Kansas and Texas. Yeah these teams that were basically like NBA player factories and you get beaten down by that so much that you and the college game is choppier. So it's sometimes, yeah. it's, you know, tougher to get off than you would in an NBA game. Totally. I mean, I found that to be true when I, what I did. So after Portsmouth, there was some talk that maybe I would get drafted in the second round. I did not, I was undrafted, but I did get invited to uh, summer league with the Cavaliers. And that was where we come back to the, the Chris Anderson uh, entry into the story but I remember like playing in summer league and being like holy shit, this is easier than playing basketball in the big 12 because the floor was spaced yeah the game like everybody was so much better everybody kind of knew where to be and if nothing else I understood I always understood how basketball worked so like you it just like it felt effortless to you yeah the game just flowed because it was like if you get the ball and you're not open, then keep the ball moving. Whereas in college, it would get like stagnant and you get stuck sometimes. Um, so I actually, I actually felt like I was probably better suited to be a pro than to be a college player um, because I also played a little bit more like a, a European player anyway, a lot of like facing the basket and stuff like that. When you got overseas, what shocked you most about gameplay? Because I remember – Man, they had the trapezoid lane. Uh, mm -hmm. Guys were shooting layups off, uh, you know, same foot layups before that was a thing. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I remember a few times, like, every every practice seemed like somebody got injured. Like, yeah. it was the last – it was the, it was the last day of their life. Like, mm -hmm. and then by the end of the practice, they're playing. No problem. They're not limping. Uh, yeah. what, what did you – know? I think it was, like, the soccer influence. But what did yeah. you notice about gameplay right when you got over? Um. <sighs> When I was in Greece, I, I noticed quickly the amount of uh, cigarette smoke in the arena being alarming. <laughs> um, we would play these, uh, it was, I don't know why, but it's, I, it's maybe because I arrived like late fall, early winter. So the, the out, outside, it was pretty cold and everybody would come in with their big coats on and their cigarettes. And by halftime, we would come back out on the court and there would be an active like cloud of cigarette smoke uh, over the court. I also remember like how beholden teams were to set plays that were overcomplicated. So like guys would be running like away from the basket and you'd be like, why is he like, why would I run that direction? I know what you're trying to get to here eventually, but like, 
my man can just stop because he can see that my, like I'm turned away from the basket. Um, and that baffled me. I also had a, I had a first year coach, uh, when I got to Greece, his name was, uh, Panyotis Yanakis. He's like the greatest Greek basketball player who ever lived. And he okay. ended up being the coach of like Olympiacos. Besides Giannis, right? Uh, possibly, I don't know. You're right. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, and he ended up being the, the coach of the Greek national team that okay. like beat the Americans. He was, he turned out to be a really great coach, but at the time he had no idea what he was doing. And I had played for some really great college coaches. I had also come from training camp with Phil Jackson. Right. So he would say things and I'd be like, I don't know about that. And I would like actively argue with him, which he did not appreciate. Um, but I think it was also that American, the American understanding of basketball, because we, we really put the game on the map was so much, we were so far ahead of where they were. That's not to say that they didn't have like tricks and ways to, to be better than, yeah. than we are, but like, it was, it was like, I was a programmer um, transported back in time to a time when like people were using Apple basic. And I was like, I no, that's not right. Like <laughs> this, you can yeah. do this a lot more easily. Um, so I had to learn how to keep my mouth shut is the moral of that story. Yeah, it was just so different, man. And they would just value different things in players. Like, this is the glue guy. And you would look at him and, like, he's the key to the game. And then you get to the game, like, what? This guy's, yeah, yeah. he's not really. Yeah, I mean, it, the, they, uh, they tended to mythologize guys a little bit more there. And, yeah, because you'd get to the game, you're like, this guy's not very good. What? Yeah. Worried about this guy. And he, but he was like a legend within the. Exactly. The he grew up there. They saw him in youth team and right. And the referee team would take care of him. And like, and you, it was that part got to be confusing at times. I think, you know, because like, especially in Greece, that first year, I also played in Russia and it was heavily corrupt, of course. Um, you didn't want Greece, to go back. I think I remember that. Right. And then they kept offering you more money. Yeah. It, Russia was, it was strange. I think I was also like, I was so burnt out by that point that I, you almost wouldn't, you almost couldn't have paid me enough to, to keep playing in Russia. Um, <laughs> in Greece, it was interesting, like how the refs were, it seemed like things were shaky at times where you're like, I think this team was supposed to win and it's not winning, but now the refs are taking, and you, you always kind of run into that in basketball, but in Greece, it seemed particularly pervasive where, there was a time we were playing Panathinaikos, which is one of the two biggest teams in, in Greece. And right. we had them down, you know, there were two seconds left and they had the ball at the very far end of the court. Um, and somehow this guy, uh, Dejan Buddy Roga, who was quite the European legend, was able to like dribble the entire length of the court, like pump fake, stop, set, shoot, all within two seconds. And we were all like, that's, there's no way that was possible. Um, but the referees just were like basket counts and then sprinted off the court. And I, you just felt like something was strange about it. Like, uh, I'm not sure we were supposed to win that game. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and the intensity of games overseas are just different, man. It's like life or death. If, if these fans, yeah, like you were saying about the guys playing, be playing hurt, right. Or, yeah, or yeah, yeah. Hurt. I think the, there's just the, yeah, there's an intensity to it. That's, that is different. We yeah. remember vividly being in, in Russia, playing in Macedonia and like wow. the court was the size of like a middle school court in Kansas. Yeah. And the 
people are just like hanging over the rafters and drums that they have the drums oh the drums the the clappers like it i mean like the, the cool thing about it is how similar to i don't know cameron indoor stadium or something that is like just that uh, i think a lot of nba teams could take a lesson from that i always wonder why like why isn't there an nba team that just embraces being the small team and just is like we only have seven thousand seats in our arena we're gonna make it crazy the I guess because I guess to get. I guess it's the money, really, right? Yeah. yeah, it is the money, but I think it's kind of short-sighted. Like, I think you could become, you could say we're going to do it differently and make that part of your identity. If you're like the Sacramento Kings, because like nobody's going to the Sacramento Kings game, so you might as well crank down the size of the arena, make it like a really um, intimate experience, and charge a lot more for the tickets. Yeah, most definitely. Let's shift to the NBA. Uh, when you were there, what was your perspective like? I'm here. I made it. Or man, this is my crazy, uh, my so-called career, as you would say, like, what was your mindset like when you were actually in the NBA? Um, I think I had the wrong mindset for a couple of the stops in that I was really trying to hold on as opposed to just trying to continue to play like I would have played. Um, I think I was intimidated for quite a while. Uh, It took until my third stop with the Phoenix Suns to really feel like I had figured out a little bit about like what I could do. Um, It helped that, you know, you, you know, from reading the book that in my second year while playing for the bulls, I had my kidney and spleen ruptured and almost died. Uh, And that really changed my perspective. I kind of got back to, I think I, I went through several of these shifts where I was playing basketball for the wrong reasons and then would get some awakening and be like, Oh good, I got to get back to like, why I did this in the first place. And that would inevitably lead to more success. And then the success would make me think, Oh, I got to cling to this more, more tightly. And I'd forget why I was doing it. So by the time I got to the Suns, I was finally feeling like, Oh, I like, I understand how the game works now. It it has slowed down enough where I can like function within it. I'm not going to be a star in the NBA. Um, but I could probably be a guy that's your eighth guy and nobody would be like, that guy's out of place. Um, and that was, that was a, that was a comforting feeling. I think I, from there, I kind of, I screwed it up because I wrote a book. And so like, at that point, nobody wanted me to be around, which was, I think I thought, I honestly think, I honestly thought that if you're choosing between a couple of guys that are going to fill out your roster you might as well pick the guy who can write about it and be funny. And because I had built up a little bit of a, you know, internet following that thought was wrong. Like they did not want their, you could be a player slash media guy. You're saying. Yeah. Like I, I thought like, Oh, I can be the sort of fan favorite for the, he's the wise cracking smart guy at the, on the bench. Um, That was very wrong. Like nobody was interested in having that guy around. Um, And I, my agent would be like, yeah, you, you're not probably going to play in the NBA again. Like you're just going to wow. play overseas. But, you know, it wasn't, but that's the thing. It, it doesn't matter if you had me on your team, it wasn't going to change your fortune. So it was a calculated risk and it didn't quite turn out the way I wanted. But because of that, I got to go back overseas and, and found kind of some comfort and, and a home there. Yeah, I'm from the mold of an obsessive work on your game type guy. I think you're from that mold somewhat as well. Were you surprised by when you got in the league, how 
some guys were super obsessed. So I'm sure Nash was ex- obsessive about working on his game. But were you surprised by those guys that didn't really work on their game that much and just could go out there, score 20, go out mm-hmm. all night? I mean, I used to go out. I mean, but basketball was always first. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think there are a lot fewer guys who can get away with going out or or, or not working at it all the time. I mean, I, right. I would guess that, you know, I grew up watching the – NBA in the 1980s and there were always the stories of like drugs and, and yeah. weird travel and all that. Um, I think that like anything else, it becomes uh, Darwinistic and you weed out the guys that, that aren't able to like stay with it. And, you know, there were certainly guys like when I was in Phoenix, Sean Marion, I don't know if Sean Marion ever thought about like his shooting form. He just, one day he walked onto the court and he's like, this is how people shoot, I guess. Um, but most guys, I mean, like I was in when I was in Phoenix, Jim Jackson was there. And crazy he, journeyman. He had a, he collected he, a lot of jerseys. Yes, he did. He uh, he I mean, he it was the same every day. Just like I'm going to whatever. I'm going to shoot these 25 threes from this spot and then from this spot and then from this spot. Um, I think a lot of guys also understood. And this was one thing that that Mike D'Antoni really understood was that, like, it was more about the high quality of your practice and this is something that I figured out later in my career was like, yeah, I only have enough energy for 45 minutes and that those 45 minutes, if they are highly concentrated are better than spending three hours in here, just messing around. I wish I would have knew that at like 14, 15, 16, 17. Totally. That's, you yeah. know, I'm actually, so I'm working on this book now, a nonfiction book called the process is the product, which is um, just about the things I've learned from creating a process in basketball applied to writing and now applied to other walks of life. And one thing I talk about is like when I was at basketball camps, when I was a kid, there'd always be these guys who would come in and say like, well, yeah, you know, I, I just work so hard at, I shoot a thousand shots a day. And I was like, Jesus, that sounds like a lot. And so I remember pretty vividly like trying it out one day in high school, like one summer day, and it took like five hours and I couldn't lift my arm the next day. And so I was like, how the hell do they do this? I guess I'm just not cut out to be a, a, a basketball player. And so then I got to college and I, I had gotten like the, the summer before my freshman year, we had gotten this workout plan from Iowa State, the strength and conditioning coach at Senate. And it was out of control, like six sets of 12 for, you know, 15. Hey, what was this at Iowa State? Yeah, this was at Iowa State. Okay. And so I'm like, Jesus Christ, I don't think I can cut out for this. Get there. And first day of conditioning, one of the seniors is like asleep outside of the rec center, 15 pounds overweight and hung over. And I wish I could say that it dawned on me then, but it took like 15 years for me to figure out like, oh, those people that always said they were shooting a thousand shots a day, they might've done it one time, but mostly they were just trying to like impress us or scare us, I guess. Like in reality, if, if you could, like, I feel like of all the people I met, I'm sure for sure that about four people I met worked harder than I did. Jackie Stiles, who was a women's basketball player from Kansas, Kevin Garnett, for sure. Steve Nash, maybe Kobe Bryant. But other than that, I'm not sure that anybody ever worked harder. And I definitely was never shooting a thousand shots a day. I would, I figured out like at a certain point, like if you can work out hard for an hour and 15 minutes, like that's all you need to do. Um, and I actually, the one of the reasons I get like 
kind of exercised about that is because I think there are lots of kids out there who are like, well, I don't have five hours to do this. And it's right. the same for writing too. People are like, well, I don't have five hours to write. And you're like, no, you, if you just do it for 40 minutes, but you do it every day, you will get a lot done. Most definitely. Uh, rest in peace, Kobe. When I was in training camp with the Lakers, um, I had, again, had this very successful as a team career at Iowa State, but I was no great shakes as an individual player. And I had decided, as I mentioned, that I was going to do things differently. So on media day, I walked up to Shaquille O'Neal and said, hey, Mr. O'Neal, my name's Paul Shirley. I'm here to go to training camp with your team and, and uh, I'm looking forward to getting going. And he said, I know who you are. And there's almost no way he knew who I was, but that was the kind of person he was, was he is, that he's willing to like kind of go out of his way to make people feel comfortable. And to me, that is the sign of someone who is at ease with who they are and at ease with their celebrity. Uh, toughest guy to guard in practice game in the NBA. Just like, wow, I can't do anything with this guy. Vladimir Rudmanovich. Really? Yep. <laughs> He didn't care at all. And that's a problem. Like he, I remember for some reason getting matched up with him in like preseason games a bunch and being terrified because he would shoot it from 35 feet and would do it again the next time down. Cause he again, didn't give a shit, which I think there's like something about those guys who grew up in war torn Yugoslav countries where yeah. they're just like, uh, well, I'm not getting shot at. So like, this is easy. Who cares? You know? Um, a lot of other guys you could figure out pretty quickly, even, even if you did, well, couldn't necessarily match up to them physically. Um, but he was a cipher for always favorite NBA city to live in. Mm, well, I only, I only, you know, I lived in hotels everywhere I went. <laughs> so like, I was not, I am not a great judge of that, but, um, it was, I loved. Wait, so the, you never actually had a place. I did in Phoenix. I had an okay. apartment in Phoenix. But it's not like I lived there for five years and I, you know, right. had a palatial estate or something. I lived in like basically corporate housing. Um, I loved being in Phoenix because the organization was so well run. Um, that started to fall apart a little bit after Robert Sarver bought the team. Um, but it was still like there were still vestiges of it being like this is just such a, a classy organization. And I was a, around enough organizations to be able to to see like, oh, that one's really well run and that one's not so well run. And there was a pretty good correlation between like the way that, and when I say the organization, I mean down to the secretaries and the assistant general managers and the scouts and the, you know, everybody just feeling like people cared if they showed up to work that day, um, which I think speaks a lot to how important the culture of your full organization is and not just the organization when that applies to the team. So, I mean, weren't you with the Bulls and the Suns in the same year? You must have seen the difference, right? Or- yeah, I was with the Bulls one year and then the Suns the next year. Okay, and you probably Bulls, saw that difference. Yeah, the Bulls were actually quite well run as well. I think oh, okay. they had, you know, they, it, there was still a lot of trickle down from the days when they had been great. Their team was not very good. Like, that was a really bad basketball team that I was on, which is why I got to play some. Um, good, but nice. the organization was, was, you know, rock solid, you could tell. Uh, favorite coach? Um, like even, so I had, I was disappointed that I didn't get to go back to Phoenix after we had had such a great year. And I felt like I did what you guys asked me to, which was to keep my mouth shut and play garbage time. <laughs> um, and despite that, Mike D'Antoni is, was the, the best because he fought outside the box 
because he didn't really seem to care too much what other people thought of the way he thought outside of the box. Yep. Uh, and because he understood the long game, I think he, he saw that like his goal was to create again, a culture of success and of, of kind of a free flowing attitude towards offense and somewhat defense. Um, and I, you know, I, I always feel bad that he, gets maligned as like well he can't win the big one the truth is like winning the big one unless you have you know the best player in the nba on your team is going to come down to luck and like getting to the playoffs several years in a row and hoping you figure out a way to win one of those paul great stuff uh what are you doing these days man what are you up to and what do you got coming up uh more books yeah more books i have a i have my first novel coming out in uh in february So that'll be uh, fine. And, and, you know, to, to tie things back to the beginning, if 10 people read it, that'll be a win. Um, And then I run a thing. So I run a thing here in LA called writer's block, which is a space for writers to work. We're actually about to uh, morph a little bit into more like productivity coaching and online co-working, which is something we started a year ago. And then COVID has kind of made the need for that even more clear. So that uh, that's called the process. Okay. Uh, and uh, I'm pretty excited to get it going. It'll, it'll really launch in the beginning of 2021. Where can we find you on social media and everywhere else? Uh, on Twitter, I'm at Paul then Shirley and Instagram. I think I'm at Paul dot Shirley, which is maybe, or maybe it's at Paul then Shirley. On- You're not the biggest social media guy. Uh, you know, I don't like, I, I mean, yeah, I use, I used to use Twitter, but Twitter is, uh, like, uh, touching an electric fence at this point. So I try to stay <laughs> away from it as much as possible. Paul, this was great, man. Uh, your book is great. Uh, it's really great having you here on the show. You're always welcome back. Uh, talk soon, man. Thank you for having me. I appreciate uh, the, the chance to come out of the woodwork and talk about the old days. <laughs> yes, sir. Talk soon. Thank you for tuning in to Combos Court and big shouts to Paul for joining in on episode 219. Combo Nation, tell a friend to tell a friend about the show and don't forget to rate, review, and punch down on that subscribe button, man. Be on the lookout for episode 220. Combo out.